This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. The devastatingly loud smashing of the windows and the bang of the pickup truck hurtling through the restaurant and into the centre of the cafeteria was deafening. The silence of the confusion that followed was harrowing, but was quickly broken by the screams of realisation of what had happened. At first, it seemed as though the pickup truck that had crashed through the windows and into Luby's restaurant had been an accident. Of course, that was the initial understanding. Why else or how else could that sort of thing happen? This is Red Rum. Stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 47, Luby's Restaurant Massacre. Just a note on this case. I do mention the perpetrator's name throughout this episode, but there is a fair amount of information on him and I didn't want to say his name more than I spoke about the victims. So there's a number of times where I'm just going to refer to him as the shooter. Sources for this episode are listed in the show notes with an incredibly detailed Reddit article by That Forensic Girl, a Texas monthly article by Barbara Knight, and a Washington Post article by William Booth. The morning of the 16th of October started like any other Wednesday in the city of Killeen in central Texas. Jean Isdale got up and ready for the day as normal. She had plans for lunchtime where she would head to the popular lunch spot, Luby's. Luby's was well known in and around the city of Killeen. It originated as a family-run business when Bob Luby decided to take a step in his father's shoes and start up his very own cafeteria-style restaurant that he named Luby's. Bob's father had started up his very own cafeteria when Bob was just a year old, and over the following years, Bob decided he wanted to do the same. In 1947, he opened up the very first Luby's, and by the early 1990s, the success was so much that the once family-run independent cafeteria had expanded into over 100 locations and even had shares listed in the New York Stock Exchange. Luby's was a well-known and popular lunch spot, so on this Wednesday morning, Jean Isdale was getting ready to drive to the restaurant and meet with her son and daughter-in-law. They'd just had their first baby, a little girl they named Summer. They were still navigating the early days of being new parents, and Jean had wanted to make sure that they were both okay and, of course, see her granddaughter. Something she looked forward to every week, she'd see Summer as much as was possible, and a lunch date was the perfect opportunity for them all to spend a bit of time together. More than just a place for dining, that particular Luby's was known as a gathering place for meetings, social occasions, for business people, and for families and friends. As Jean pulled into the parking lot outside of Luby's, it was obvious that there was quite a buzz around the restaurant today, more so than was usual, especially as it was only just midday. The 16th of October in the US, especially back in 1991, was a celebration holiday called Boss's Day, and the restaurant had been advertising special offers and deals for this specific day. Boss's Day is much less popular or well-known nowadays as it was in the 1990s, but 
is basically a day for employees to thank their bosses for being kind and fair throughout the year. Because of this, the restaurant was much busier than usual, with anywhere between 80 and 150 people inside at the earlier lunchtime of midday. As Jean approached the red brick building, looking upwards she could see the famous white and yellow Luby's lettering. Outside the front entrance were a number of small pastel green bollards that separated the parking lot from the doors of the restaurant. To the right of the doors was a large glass window with flowing cream-coloured lace curtains that shaded the customers inside from the beating sun. Jean settled down inside, nearby the window, and got to choosing her food order from the green and white menus placed above the counter. There was an array of hearty, feel-good meals on offer, from fried fish to roast beef or fried chicken. Meanwhile, other families, business people and friends were making their way into Luby's and were met by staff dressed in black trousers or skirts and either a white shirt or a white and red pinstriped shirt. Just down the road, the chiropractic clinic was operating as usual. Dr Susanna Hupp was working there when she received a surprise visit from her parents, Al and Ursula. They had just visited a golf course nearby and had popped in to see if Susanna would like to join them for lunch. She would have liked to, but had to say no. She had an unusually busy day where she'd be seeing patients back to back. But she did feel bad. She could have squeezed in a quick lunch if she'd really tried. And just then, her clinic phone rang. It was a friend of hers, Mark, who was actually the manager of Luby's. He invited her to come into the restaurant for lunch so they could have a quick catch-up. And she told him about her parents heading over and decided that she could spare the time after all. It would be nice to see her parents and her friend and take a break from the hectic schedule at the clinic. She managed to catch up to her parents just before they left and hopped into their car and they all headed over to the restaurant. As the three of them arrived at the restaurant, so did a tall, blonde, white woman called Sylvia King. She had just arrived there from the nearby salon she owned. She'd come out on her lunch break for a quick bite before she'd head back to work. She planned to be out for no longer than an hour and she told her employees that although she was heading out for lunch, she didn't know where and she wouldn't be long. She made the split decision that day to pull up outside of Luby's and make a quick, lone lunch stop before continuing with her long day of clients back at the salon. Susanna and her parents, Alan Ursula, were shown to their table by Susanna's friend, Mark, who sat and chatted with them for about five minutes. They were deciding what they would like to eat when Mark looked up and noticed that the queue leading up to the cash register was getting longer and the cashier on duty was seemingly having a bit of trouble with her till. Mark excused himself and said he'd pop back later to see how they were getting on. As he approached the cash register, two men passed by him and towards a table of their own. These two men lived close by. One of them was a pastor at the local Trinity Worship Centre. His name was Kirby Lack, and the other was a veterinary doctor, Michael Griffith. Kirby had been to the gym that morning and swung by Michael's practice just afterwards to see if he wanted to grab lunch. The two headed out together, with Kirby commenting 
that he'd have to make this a quick one. He was planning on spending the afternoon working on his boat. The pair sat down with their food and began to eat. Their conversation quickly drifted towards what was usual for them, faith and life. Things were proving to be quite difficult for Michael right now, and he spoke of his financial issues and said that when he died, he was worried only a few people would show up to his funeral. As was the norm for Kirby, he tried to cheer his friend up and told him not to worry. If something ever happened to Michael before Kirby, he'd be sure to be at the funeral. Michael joked that at least then there would be four people there. Meanwhile, Susanna and her dad Al finished their meals quite quickly, and it wasn't long before Ursula had also finished hers. With that, the three decided that they should leave within the next few minutes so that Susanna could get back to work. It was a particularly busy day after all. Just outside of Luby's, an employee of the restaurant was being dropped off in the parking lot just minutes before her shift started. Her name was Angela Wilson and she was pregnant. Her boyfriend, Eddie Sanchez, said goodbye to her, watched her close the passenger side door and then head towards the entrance doors. Just then, he glanced up and out to the side. He saw a Ford Ranger pickup truck speeding through the parking lot and towards the large glass windows on the right side of the entrance. The same windows that were not separated from the parking lot with those pastel green bollards. The same windows where hundreds of people sat just on the other side, settling down to eating their lunches and talking with their colleagues, friends and nursing three-month-old babies. The devastatingly loud smashing of the windows and the bang of the pickup truck hurtling through the restaurant and into the centre of the cafeteria was deafening. The silence of confusion that followed was harrowing, but was quickly broken by the screams of realisation of what had happened. At first, it seemed as though the pickup truck that had crashed through the windows and into Luby's had been an accident. Of course, that was the initial understanding. Why else or how else could that sort of thing happen? One man, Thomas Simmons, had managed to jump out of the way of the initial blast of glass and pickup truck that had come hurtling towards him. He then had run towards the driver's side door of the pickup truck. He could see the window was open or smashed open. Either way, it didn't matter. As long as the window was open, he'd be able to assess the state of the driver and potentially help them out to safety. As he approached the window... Thomas let out a slight sigh of relief when he saw an arm move. The driver was alive. Thomas then felt fear flood his entire body as he came face to face with the barrel of a semi-automatic gun. The gunman shot at Thomas a number of times at point-blank range and Thomas fell to the floor. With that initial set of gunshots, came the stark realisation that the car crash hadn't been an accident. Someone had intentionally driven into a restaurant full of people and was now ready to kill anyone he could by means of a Glock 17 9mm semi-automatic. The atmosphere in the room shifted significantly and quickly. Both customers and employees had gone from trying to understand what was happening and darting about attempting to help those who had been injured from the initial crash to dropping down on the floor, 
under tables and in corners of the restaurant where possible, trying desperately to hide and disguise themselves until they could figure out what to do or where to go next. A number of employees at Luby's, who were situated in the kitchen area, managed to escape pretty quickly through the emergency exit. Another employee, 17-year-old Mark Matthews, heard the screams of panic and the shots ringing out, and knew he had to find a place to hide. He crawled into an industrial-sized dishwasher and pulled the door to nearly closed. Another employee, Maria Serena, scrambled into the fridge and hid behind a number of milk cartons. Back in the main restaurant, another shot rang out from the window of the pickup truck. This time, it hit a man in the back, Louis Carabello, and he sank to the floor, coughed and spluttered a little, and then fell still. The shooter emerged from his vehicle. A tall, white man with dark, shaggy hair and facial stubble got out of the pickup truck. In one hand was the 9mm semi-automatic, in the other was a Ruger P89. The man holding the two guns was George Hennard. George Hennard was born in 1956, and by this point he was 35 years old. He was born in Pennsylvania, where his father was an expert in orthopaedics and tended to work in army hospitals. This meant the family moved around a lot, and George responded to this by becoming a bit of a recluse. He didn't like to socialise with people at school and tended to think that he was above others. He graduated high school and joined the Navy, where he was suspended quite early on for possession of weed and having a racial argument with a fellow shipmate. He returned home in Texas and lived in his parents' two-storey in the city of Belton, In 1989, his parents put the house up for sale, but it gained no interest, and even in 1991, he was still living there. In February and March of 1991, he moved briefly to Henderson, just under 200 miles away from Belton, around 20 miles away from the Lubies in Killeen. Whilst living in Henderson, he bought and legally registered two guns, the 9mm and the Ruger P89, the same guns he would brandish about just seven months later in Luby's restaurant. Soon after buying those guns, he moved back to Belton and drifted from job to job. During this time, his feelings towards women became outwardly negative. He was obsessive and would hone in on individual women, vocally expressing his disgust for them. He once sent a four-page letter to two sisters living nearby, Jaina and Jill. In the letter, he outlined the reasons as to why he hated them. He called them, quote, treacherous female vipers who tried to destroy me and my family. He went on to say that he had found the best and worst in women in Belton, and that, quote, I would like to personally remind all those vipers that I have civil rights too. I will, no matter what, prevail over the female vipers in those two rinky-dink towns in Texas. The two sisters then mailed that letter onto their father, who was a hospital president in Madison. After a staff psychiatrist analysed the letter, it was determined that there was not only, quote, pent-up anger, but also grandiose sense of power. In mid-September of 1991, 
Jill was working a shift at the bank in the city of Belton. She was handing out popcorn, as was her usual job at that time of the day, when she spotted George Hennard entering the bank. He walked up to her and she gave him some popcorn. As he stepped back, he stared at her without saying anything for 20 seconds or so and forced a smile. She noticed his eyes seemed, quote, scary, piercing. Within the time they'd known of George, he'd made his feelings quite clear and had made an obscene hand gesture at both of them on separate occasions. Their mother had warned the girls that she thought George was stalking them. She had seen him at a department store that Jill was shopping at one time and another time had seen him when they were parking in a nearby parking lot. These sightings came just weeks before the sisters received the four-page hate letter. Their mother was incredibly concerned and after she read the letter herself, she asked the chief of detectives to investigate the matter. She was assured that they would patrol the neighbourhood and would get back in contact with them. But that didn't happen. And throughout the weeks leading up to the Luby's disaster, both Jaina and Jill noticed George Hennard's behaviour began to become even more intense. Sometime that same year, George was contacted by the city of Belton. Part of his property, specifically a red brick wall on the outside perimeter, had begun to break down and was becoming hazardous toward pedestrians walking by. He was asked by the city of Belton to fix the wall. It's reported that this angered him. He didn't want to be told what to do by anyone, and that included the authority of the city of Belton. Then, in early October of 1991, whilst working at a cement company around 10 miles away from the Luby's restaurant, he returned home to watch a documentary about James Hubberty. James Hubberty was a mass murderer who fatally shot 21 people and wounded 19 others at a McDonald's in San Diego, California before being killed himself in 1984. It's reported that George Hennard also watched The Fisher King earlier that year. The film is about a radio DJ who inspires a man into killing a number of people in a restaurant shooting. That week in early October, after watching the James Hubberty documentary, he made a decision. He chose to give his notice in at work. On the morning of October 16th, 1991, George got dressed into blue jeans, a pullover shirt, and loaded up his clips of ammo and two firearms. He got into his pickup truck and made the short journey to the Leon Heights driving convenience store, one that he visited often, sometimes up to six times a week. He arrived at 5.30am and bought his usual, a sausage and biscuit sandwich, a bottle of orange juice and a newspaper. Today, he also treated himself to a pack of donuts. The owner of the shop had recognised George the moment his photo had been released following the event. He stuck out because, unlike most of the customers who visited the convenience store, George was often rude to customers. He'd jump in front of them in the queue, he'd mouth off, and the owner remembered one time he saw George spit on the side of a customer's car before getting into his car and speeding away. There isn't much known about what he did for the next few hours, but we do know that at some point later that morning, he made the short 17-mile drive to Luby's cafeteria in Killeen. He arrived there at 12.20. 
He psyched himself up and accelerated towards the glass window in front of him. The shattering of the glass was nothing in comparison to the giant truck and the screams of the customers within the restaurant. That's when he saw Thomas Simmons moving towards his driver's side window, where he shot him a number of times. Then he fired another shot towards Luis Caraballo, who was facing away from the vehicle. Finally, he opened up the driver's side door and stepped out of the vehicle. He shouted, quote, This is for the women of Belton. This is what Bell County has done to me. It's payback time. Is it worth it? He pointed his gun towards a table of two people who were still sat upright. They hadn't been hit by the truck or the flying glass, but they had been so terrified and confused by what was happening that they were stuck, almost frozen in their seats. Suddenly, the shooter fired towards one of the women, Dee Leisure. The bullet hit her in the face, but thankfully it was a flesh wound that passed straight through and didn't cause her to pass out from shock or blood loss. Dee's friend, who she'd been sitting with, Glenn Spivey, grabbed Dee and pulled her towards the bathroom, hoping to find a hiding place nearby. But with that, more popping, more gunshots rang out, and the pair dropped down to the floor and tried to stay as still as they possibly could. And then, the sound of footsteps calmly coming towards them. Dee grabbed a plastic box that was discarded nearby and attempted to cover her head. Glenn had climbed on top of her at this point, attempting in some way to protect her, using his own body as a shield. It was no use. Dee couldn't see anything, but she heard a pop and then felt Glenn's body slump on top of her. She pulled herself out from underneath Glenn and was faced with the terrifying reality that he had been shot at point-blank range in the forehead. He was dead. Dee began frantically crawling across the floor towards a woman who must have been 30 years older than her. The woman was shaking and crying and Dee so desperately wanted to grab her hand and hold it. But just then, she felt a horrific, sharp pain that shot through her thigh. But as quickly as that had happened, the shooter seemed to change course. He had been drawn towards a commotion from a more central point in the restaurant. Susanna Hupp's father, Al, had decided that he needed to make a move. He was 71 years old and a World War II veteran. He told Susanna that if he didn't do something, the shooter would just make his way around the almost 100 people still in the restaurant and likely kill them all. Susanna couldn't take it. She tried to dissuade him and tried to hold him down, but it wasn't long before he saw a moment of opportunity. Al stood up and ran towards the shooter. He stretched his arms outwards with the aim of ambushing the man in front of him and taking him down to floor level, if nothing else to buy other people surrounding him a bit of time. Al did manage to cover a fair few feet, but then the shooter turned and saw him and shot him in the chest. Susanna peered through the overturned chairs that were in front of her and saw her father on the floor. He was still breathing, but barely. His breaths were shallow and slowing. Even from a short distance away, Susanna could see that her father's chest wound was severe. He wasn't going to make it. Her mind moved a million miles an hour towards what she could possibly do. She clutched at her bag, rifling through it as best she could, still trying to be quiet 
and discreet. She owned a gun herself that her friend had bought her for protection a few years earlier. After just seconds of rifling through her purse, she realised, however, that she had left her gun in the car because of a specific law at the time prohibiting her from carrying a concealed weapon. She buried her head in her arms and tried to lay as still as possible. Just a few minutes after Al had been shot, Susanna's mother Ursula had managed to crawl over to him. She saw he was in a bad state and she held his head in her hands, sobbing. The shooter saw this happen and turned to walk towards her. As he approached Ursula, he raised his gun and shot her in the head. Suzanne's parents had been married for 47 years. They died together in a heartbreaking end to their lives. Meanwhile, George Hennard's new path had taken him towards a group of killing independent school district employees. He shot towards a man who was hit in the foot and then he shot towards a woman and hit her in the leg. By pure coincidence, another table was full of killing independent school district employees and the shooter again began firing into the group of trembling humans, terrified, shaking on the floor. He shot and killed Patricia Carney, also known as Pat. Then he turned slightly and aimed his gun towards all of the customers who had dropped down to the floor whilst they'd been waiting in the serving line. This meant that, unlike the people who had been targeted so far, they were completely exposed. They couldn't hide, even partially behind boxes or tables or chairs. The shooter aimed his gun wherever he saw fit, shooting and killing a number of people. And then he turned to face two women. One of those women, Roxanne Peters, kept her eyes tightly shut whilst her friend Connie Miller tried to do the same. Roxanne couldn't bear to look up, but that was a mistake. The next thing she heard was George Hennard's squeaky voice, quote, trying to hide from me, bitch. He then fired one shot into the back of Connie's head and she died immediately. With that, seemingly having satisfied his need to kill for a moment, he turned towards another area of the restaurant. This time, he shot and killed two people underneath a bench nearby. And then, he turned towards another woman, ready to fire at point-blank range. The woman, Charlene Smith, readied herself, bracing for the impact of what was about to come. Thankfully, and for an unknown reason at the time, that impact never came. Instead, Charlene heard the clatter of something dropping down onto a nearby food tray. When she managed to peek up and over to where the noise had come from, she saw that the shooter had dropped one of his guns, now clearly because he'd run out of ammunition, and instead turned and started walking away from Charlene and towards another group of people. He still had his 9mm Glock 17, and readied that for his next shooting spree. But, for just a moment, he stopped what he was doing when he spotted a woman, Annika McNeil, holding her three-year-old daughter close to her chest. The shooter told Annika, quote, Get that kid out of here. I ain't killing no babies today. Tell everyone that Bell County was bad. End quote. The mother and daughter ran out of the restaurant and into the parking lot, the whole time unsure if this was a true act of mercy or whether she would be shot as she ran outside. Annika and her daughter both made it out safely 
but had to leave Annika's mother behind. She didn't know, but the moment she escaped out of the restaurant front doors, her mother stood up and was immediately shot in the face. A group of employees from Fort Hood Dentists had gone out that afternoon for lunch with their friends and now retired workmates Barbara Knight and Kitty Davis. Barbara and Kitty were very close friends and had worked at the Ford Hood Dental Clinic for years. This lunch reunion was something they'd both been looking forward to for a while. The group had arrived late in the morning, but by 12.15pm, most of them had left. However, Kitty and Barbara had decided to stay a little longer. Kitty had been lent over, showing Barbara Polaroid photographs of her baby grandson when the pickup truck came hurtling through the glass window near to their table. At that first moment, Barbara assumed, like many others, that it was just a runaway vehicle and her immediate concern after that initial crash was that it may burst into flames. She readied herself to get up and run away from the car but was stopped by Kitty's voice. She shouted, he's got a gun and Barbara dropped back down towards the floor. Only at that moment did she realise it had been purposeful. Just seconds went by before the popping sound of shots, echoed by the screams and cries of the people surrounding Kitty and Barbara, rang out. The pair of them stayed as close to the ground as possible, attempting to shield themselves with the chairs and table that they'd been sat at. Just then, Barbara felt an immense pain rip through her foot. As she looked down, she realised her feet were bare, She must have lost her shoes in the initial crash and dived down towards the floor. Then she saw her foot pouring with blood and, to the side, saw Kitty clutching her hand. A bullet had gone through Kitty's thumb and Barbara's foot. She was hurt, but okay. She didn't make a sound and neither did Kitty. Despite the initial terror of screaming, by the time the shooter had started his rampage, the place was eerily quiet people hoping to become invisible, if only they didn't make a noise. Barbara looked across to her other hand. She was still clutching the $5 bill she had been holding, readying herself to pay. A thought flashed through her mind. How was she going to get up to the cashier to pay with all of this going on? A silly thought. There was no one there to pay. Everyone was fighting to stay alive. She realised in that moment... All she craved was a bit of normality. Then, the worst. The shooter circled back around to where the two women were lying on the floor. He aimed his gun at Kitty and shot her three times in the back and then moved on. Kitty's body had jerked with the impact and she looked up towards Barbara. Quote, I've been hit, pray for me. With that, and with the shooter having turned his focus elsewhere, Barbara unhooked Kitty's bra to get a closer look at the injury on her back. She grabbed a stack of napkins from the floor nearby and pressed them to Kitty's wound. Jean Isdale, her son, daughter-in-law and her baby granddaughter had been very close to where the pickup truck had ended up stopping. Jean's son and daughter-in-law instinctively covered their daughter with their bodies, and kept as still as they could. Because of all of the other movements and sounds coming from elsewhere, 
Thankfully, the shooter's eyes didn't spend much time on Jean's family and glanced instead just beyond them. The shooter aimed through the open space and towards another group of customers. One shot immediately hit an adult woman, Judy, who had come to the restaurant with her mum, Venice. The bullet passed through Judy's hand and struck Venice, killing her immediately. Meanwhile, just across the restaurant, Kirby Lack and Michael Griffith had been biding their time, trying to work out what to do exactly. They found themselves underneath a table with two other men, John Romero Jr. and Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Doddy. It wasn't long before the shooter set his gaze on John Romero Jr. He felt a crushing pain in his chest and looked down to see his white shirt quickly turning a dark shade of red. He fell to the floor and his breathing quickened before eventually slowing. His eyes flickered and he stared at the ceiling. He was alive, but barely. Moments later, George shot Michael Griffith twice, once in the leg and again in his chest. Michael slumped to the floor, still alive but weakening every second that passed by. And then, the shooter pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. He tried again, and it failed once more. A brief moment of relief swept over Kirby and Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Doddy. He'd run out of ammo. That moment of relief, however was quickly shattered when the shooter grabbed another magazine and loaded it into the gun. Before the two men could really figure out what they might do, the shooter zeroed in on Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Doddy and shot him in the chest. Then he turned his sights onto Kirby Lack, who had turned away in an attempt to find an exit or another hiding place. Kirby felt a severe pain at the back of his upper hip and fell to the floor. By this point, Michael Griffith had managed to pull himself into a crawling position and dragged himself across the floor and towards his friend Kirby. He needed to check on him and help him if he could. But before he made it more than a few feet, he was shot dead. Kirby then heard the shooter shout, quote, was it worth it? And then, the women of Belton and Killeen are vipers. As the shooter turned and continued firing shots randomly, Kirby saw him set his eyes back on John Romero Jr. John was holding his chest and was still breathing. The shooter took aim again at John's chest and fired. John let out a final breath and then passed away. This was too much for the injured Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Doddy, who shouted at him, quote, Why don't you just get out of here and leave us alone? The lieutenant's body jerked backwards as he fell to the floor again. This time, he'd been shot dead. The only one of the four men left at the table was Kirby Lack. He was laying as still as he could on the floor, trying his hardest to play dead. He was seriously injured from the previous gunshot wound to his hip, but he also knew that he was alive and he needed to stay that way. The shooter walked closer to Kirby and then he kicked Kirby to see if he was still alive. Kirby managed to stay still but the shooter wouldn't stop. He grabbed Kirby's head by his hair and held the gun to the back of his head. 
Just as he was about to fire the gun, there was a loud bang noise from behind them. At first, Kirby assumed that the loud bang was the gunshot and that any minute now, he'd see the bright light. He quickly realised that the sound behind him, however, was a completely different noise. It wasn't a gunshot at all. The sound distracted the gunman enough that the shot he had actually fired just missed Kirby's head and instead went into the carpet just centimetres away from him. And with that, the shooter turned and walked quickly towards where the loud bang had come from. 28-year-old mechanic Tommy Vaughan had been at Luby's with a few of his co-workers celebrating a birthday in their group. Tommy had been desperately trying to find a way out, but he knew he couldn't walk out of the front door. The shooter would easily see him and likely shoot him on the spot. He had been wondering how difficult it would be to break the glass window that was just a few metres away from him and a number of other customers. He and a few of his co-workers tried what they could to break the window. They tried punching at it and kicking at it. But when this didn't work, Tommy decided to use what had always been his strength, his size. He stood at over six foot six inches and weighed over 300 pounds. When the kicking and punching was clearly not working, he decided to throw himself out the window. It worked. His entire body went hurtling through the window. There's a really clear photo of the hole Tommy made in the window, so I'll add that to our Instagram post for this episode. With that, and with Tommy now on the outside of the restaurant, he was met by an officer who had seen the glass smash and ran up to try and get a look inside. He helped as many people out as possible. A total of around 20 people were saved in that moment thanks to Tommy's heroic efforts. One of the people to escape was Susanna. She thought her mother Ursula was right behind her. It was only once she got outside that she realised that both of her parents had been killed inside the restaurant. By this point, two police officers had arrived at the building and peered inside. They saw the shooter brandishing his gun around and then pointing it downwards as though he was aiming it at someone on the floor. One of the officers fired a warning shot into the ceiling and George returned fire. The two officers then rushed inside through the window the car had smashed through and then they called for backup. Once they were inside, they aimed at the shooter whilst covering for one another. The shooter was hit on one of his arms, but managed to somehow reload his gun and return fire. He shouted that he had hostages and the officers should leave, but both officers had already seen that he didn't have any hostages. He was alone and the two officers inside, as well as another officer who had come through a different entrance, approached the shooter at lightning speed. One officer aimed at George and shot him in the chest. He fell to the floor, but he still had his hand on his gun. He was hurt, but alive. He used his final bit of energy to raise the gun towards his temple and pulled the trigger. The autopsy report was also released today. It shows that 22 of the 23 victims were shot to death. The report on the remaining victim was not yet available. Police say all the victims were shot by George Hennard, who then shot and killed himself. It was the worst mass shooting in this nation's history. The massive recovery process then began. Paramedics made their way into the building, stepping over bodies all over the main seating area and out into the lobby area. They checked for any sign of life 
and transported those who were wounded but alive to the nearest hospital. Anyone who wasn't injured or was able to stand and walk was asked to move quickly towards the officers, and then they were led outside. Mark Matthews, the employee who had locked himself in the dishwasher, was missing for hours, but he was found at 7am the following morning. He had been sleeping on a conveyor belt inside of the dishwasher. He had stayed put in the dishwasher because he couldn't hear what was going on outside of it. The other employee who had taken her hiding place in the fridge was also found safely. The first person to be shot, the man who approached the driver's side door where the pickup truck had rammed into the window, Thomas Simmons, survived the attack, as did the next person to be shot, Louis Caraballo. Barbara Knight was taken out of the restaurant on a stretcher, but insisted her friend Kitty was in a much worse state and needed to be seen to immediately. A helicopter arrived to take her out to hospital, but she told them she didn't need the helicopter. Kitty did. They told her they didn't have any more stretchers, so Barbara gave hers up and made sure Kitty was taken to the hospital in the helicopter. The last memory she has of her friend is her groaning, being wheeled out towards the helicopter. And it was just three days later that Kitty died in hospital. The attack itself only lasted for around 12 minutes. The devastation of each second that passed by would not be forgotten by the people of Killeen or the entire country. Altogether, 23 people were killed and 27 were wounded. At the time, the shooting was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in US history. The two sisters, Jill and Jaina, who had received the four-page hate letter from George, said they weren't surprised by his actions. And other people that knew of George weren't surprised he'd snapped either. A clerk at the convenience store that George had visited on the morning of the massacre told reporters, quote, George never smiled when he came in here. He just seemed like he had the world on his shoulders. He was a loner. He never talked. But yesterday he seemed almost calm, even a little friendly for the only time I can remember. Usually I was scared of him. The motives for George Hennard's crimes are not fully known due to him dying at the scene and not leaving a suicide note. However, the main theory surrounding the attack centres around the prospect that he was driven by an intense hostility towards women. One officer at the time said, quote, that is one avenue we are pursuing. A greater percentage of women were killed or injured. 14 of the 22 people killed Many at close range were women, as were many of the other people wounded. Several people who survived said the shooter passed over men to shoot women. A number of witnesses reported that the shooter bitterly spit out misogynistic statements at some of his female victims before shooting them. It was also reported that he was smirking the entire time. Generally, he was a turd. An ex-roommate of his said, quote, he hated blacks, Hispanics and gays. He said women were snakes and always had derogatory remarks about them, especially after fights with his mother. A pink granite memorial stands behind the Killing Community Centre with the date of the event and the names of those who were killed. After the attack and during the recovery process, Glenn's friend Dee was treated for her wounds. 
Whilst the attack was happening, she assumed the first bullet had passed clean through her cheek, but it had in fact gone through her cheek and become lodged in the soft tissue of her neck. She also suffered a bullet wound to her thigh, which fully shattered her hip and she had to have a number of surgeries. Kirby Lapp, who was at the table with his friend Michael Griffith on that Wednesday afternoon, suffered with his injuries after the attack and with survivor's guilt. He noticed how well the shooter handled his guns and that he would have killed Kirby if it hadn't been for that momentary bang that had distracted him. Jean Isdale's baby daughter, Summer, went on to compete in and win the Miss Texas Teen USA pageant in 2007 and competed in the Miss Teen USA pageant in the same year. The Luby's restaurant itself did reopen five months after the massacre, but it closed permanently on September the 9th, 2000. As of 2020, a buffet called Yak Sing currently stands where the Lubies used to be. The conversation over gun control in the US is very apparent in today's climate, especially after the Robb Elementary School shooting in Texas, where 18 people were injured and 22 killed. I have spoken a little bit about that shooting in our Let's Talk Patreon bonus episode last month. I don't think I'd really be able to do this episode without talking a little bit about the conversation around gun control. But I don't live in the US. I don't have direct uh, experience with that. Although I am a firm advocate for not having free licensing of guns. Mass shooting is defined as Incidents involving several victims of firearm-related violence. And by that definition, there have been 47 separate mass shootings in the US in June alone. And I'm writing this on the 24th of June, so that number may well have gone up by now. One of the survivors of the Luby's shooting, Susanna Hupp, whose parents Al and Ursula were both killed in the shooting, has, since that day, had the goal of eliminating gun regulations. When I read that, I was shocked and a bit confused. Parents of children killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting, for example, have famously fought for tighter gun restrictions. The guns made the massacres more deadly than they ever could have been without them. Of course, they'd fight for gun laws to be stricter. But Susanna Hutt has done the opposite. During the shooting, Susanna had the thought of grabbing her gun from her purse, but realised in that very moment that she left it in her car because she didn't want to violate the state's prohibition on carrying a concealed weapon. She said, quote, I realised we were just sitting ducks. That is just the most sickening feeling in the world, to just wait for it to be your turn. Susanna believes that the key to preventing more gun deaths is more guns, as well as mental health treatment and better risk assessment. After a mass shooting at Majory Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, where 17 students were murdered, The CEO of National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, told a conservative convention, quote, There is no greater personal, individual freedom than the right to keep and bear arms, the right to protect yourself and the right to survive. It is not bestowed by man, but granted by God to all Americans as our American birthright, end quote. 
Some gun owners have linked that their defence of gun rights is not just about firearms, but about ensuring the continued manifestation of God's will on earth. This is dangerous because, ultimately, that removes any possibility of finding a middle ground. Author Andrew Whitehead said that this suggests, quote, If we do anything about gun control, we are turning our backs on God's desire and plan for this country and the founding fathers and all of those things. It's so strongly ingrained and has become so central to that identity. So to float the idea of gun control is almost to attack, in their view, their Christian identity, end quote. Journalist Catherine Jones covered the Luby massacre for Time magazine when it happened in 1991. Years later, she teaches journalism and one of her former students covered the mass shooting that happened in Odessa where eight people were killed and 25 injured. She said that coverage made her realise, quote, a new generation of journalists is being dispatched to cover a new generation of mass murders. When will it end? Gun control advocates are already pointing to that school shooting as evidence of consequences of Texas's law gun restriction. Several state legislators told reporters that Ramos purchased the AR-style rifles he used in the attack after turning 18 earlier this month. Texas law allows those 18 and older to purchase long rifles, although the age to purchase handguns is 21. Outside an Abbott press conference on Wednesday, Beto O'Rourke commented, it is insane that we allow an 18-year-old to go in and buy an AR-15. What the hell did we think he was going to do with that? End quote. Catherine has experienced much gun violence in her own life. During a robbery back in the 1980s, a friend of hers was killed. And then just after she covered the Lubies massacre in 1991, she was held at gunpoint in her own house, tied up and robbed. She did own a number of firearms herself then, bought for protection, but was unable to use them. She said, quote, The experience convinced me that guns offer protection only if there is time and opportunity to use them for self-defence. Usually, though, shooters rely on the element of surprise. There is a lot of conversation around gun rights and compromise seems unachievable at this point. Ultimately, it seems there are two arguments for the prevention of more mass shootings. Either strict gun laws that lessen the number of guns available or more readily available guns. The COVID-19 lockdown saw a steep rise in firearm purchases in the US with 7.5 million US adults just under 3% of the population, becoming new gun owners. And during the year 2020, a total of 45,222 people died from gun-related injuries in the US. It seems clear when you look at the facts, the evidence, that limiting guns would help. But people are complex and scared, and unfortunately... Just last week, a US Supreme Court struck down a New York law that limited who could carry a handgun in public. It means that, at a time where firearms, violence and mass shootings are ever-increasing, and when the most likely cause of death among US children and adolescents is from gun violence, even more guns will be on the streets. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell.
It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.